Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you, so thank you to Joel and uh, the organizers of this conference for the kind invitation. I want to look uh, with you this morning at the Christ of grace, and I've chosen our text as Luke chapter 23, verses 27 to 34. So, a little change on the program from Mark chapter 15, but I thought this passage would be better suited for the topic of the Christ of grace. So, let's read the Word of God from Luke chapter 23, and we'll read from verses 27 to 34. And as we come to the reading of God's Word, let me pray. Father, may the meditations of all uh, our hearts and the words of my mouth and the reading of Your Word be acceptable in Your sight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 23, verse 27, And there followed Him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, There they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they they parted his raiment and cast lots. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. When it comes to the cross of Christ, I think we tend to think primarily of the cross as a display of God's love for us in sending His Son to die for us. That is, we tend to think of it primarily as a display of the Father's love for us. And of course, that is true. The cross displays God the Father's love for His lost world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John 4.10, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross of Christ displays the love of God the Father. But it is equally true that the cross of Christ displays the love of God the Son for us. 
John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto his Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Galatians 2, verse 20. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The cross of Christ displays the love of God the Father, but it also displays the love of Christ the Son. It displays the grace of Christ. And what I want to do in this lecture is to look at a text that contains a very practical example of the grace of Christ, of the Christ of grace. Now, I say the Christ of grace and not just the grace of Christ because there is no such thing as grace without the God of grace. Grace is only grace because it's God's grace. Grace as a thing does not exist. Grace only exists because the God of grace exists. Well, so too with the grace of Christ. It does not exist outside of Christ as a thing in itself. The grace of Christ only exists because the Christ of grace exists. And I think one of the best and most practical texts that reveal the Christ of grace to us is Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the first of Christ's seven sayings from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amy Carmichael, the Northern Irish missionary to India, once said, a cup brimful of sweet water, when jolted, only spills sweet water. A cup brimful of sweet water, when jolted, only spills sweet water. Well, in his crucifixion, in the most intense period of his suffering, Christ was jolted. And what spilt out was only the sweet water of forgiveness, the sweet water of grace. Earlier in his life, Jesus had taught that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and on the cross, his heart overflowed and his mouth spoke. And what came out, what overflowed was forgiveness. As he was being crucified, what came out of the mouth of Christ was not revenge, but remission. It was not retaliation, but words of reconciliation. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These words are the first of Christ's seven sayings from the cross, and I think 
In them, we see the grace of Christ, or better, the Christ of grace shine so brilliantly, so beautifully. And what I want to do is look at this verse in its context under seven headings. Uh, so you should be out of here by lunchtime. Uh, seven headings, which I hope will illuminate the Christ of grace for us. These first words of Christ on the cross are first an inspired prayer, an inspired prayer. Now, by inspired, I don't mean they're inspiring, as if Jesus' prayer is an inspiration to others. Certainly, it can function like that. Jesus' death is an example to His followers of how to suffer well, as Peter makes clear in his first epistle. But what I mean here by an inspired prayer is not in the sense of inspiring us, but in the sense of inspired Scripture. Because the authenticity and originality of this verse in the original manuscripts of the New Testament is debated. There are text-critical issues as to whether Luke originally wrote this verse or whether a scribe put it in later. Now, I know that text-critical issues are why some of you have come to this conference we're just waiting to know which speaker is going to deal with the text's critical issues. Well, it's me. And I know I'm also in the presence of textus receptus brethren. So some of you are thinking, so what's the issue? <clears throat> well, there is an issue in some of the Greek manuscripts. So let me just make a few comments that will be satisfying for all of us so that we can indeed see these words are inspired Scripture and not an interpolation of a scribe. There's a question mark over their inclusion because some of the earliest and weediest Greek manuscripts do not have this verse. However, there are some early manuscripts that do, and it also is acknowledged by the early church fathers, which seems to support its originality. But more importantly, there is internal evidence. It makes more sense for a scribe to admit it if it were original than to include it if it were not original. One view is that the scribal copyist might have admitted it after the fall of Jerusalem to avoid making Jesus' prayer look ineffective, because it seemed in contradiction to Jesus' repeated predictions of the coming judgment on Jerusalem. So that's why the scribe may have taken it out. That's why we have Greek manuscripts where it's not present. What is also in its favor for originality is the fact that it is unlikely that a scribe would make up such a response from Jesus to the cruelty that he was experiencing. The only person who would even think of praying a prayer of forgiveness in such a context of cruelty is Jesus Himself, which therefore speaks to its originality. In other words, I think the internal evidence trumps the external evidence. What's more, the words of Jesus reveal that He is living out the standard that He Himself set for His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Well, isn't Jesus doing just that as He's being crucified? 
When we read Jesus' words from the cross and we compare them with those from the mount in the Sermon on the Mount, we're reminded of that lovely phrase in the Westminster Confession, chapter 1 on Scripture, the consent of all its parts. I think Jesus' words of forgiveness from the cross consent with His words of forgiveness on the mount as He gives His great sermon. So, the first thing we can see about these words of Luke chapter 23, 34 is that they contain an inspired prayer, and therefore we ought to take them as seriously as we would any other part of Scripture. Another reason they carry weight and illuminate the grace of Christ is that they are uttered in a moment of intense suffering. They're uttered in a moment of intense suffering. This is the second point. Notice the context, verse 33, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. The place that Jesus is brought to is also known as the skull or Golgotha. The skull communicates a place of suffering and death which is implemented practically by the crucifixion that Jesus undergoes. This is a moment of intense suffering for Jesus. But we should note that His suffering does not begin at the end of His life. We can tend to think of Jesus' suffering only commencing on Thursday evening after He is arrested and put on trial. But Jesus' suffering spans the whole of His life. Jesus' suffering begins in the womb when He struggles through His mother's birth canal, making one of the most dangerous journeys that a baby makes in its life. Then comes His circumcision when He undergoes the knife and sheds blood for the first time. Gerhardus Voss comments insightfully, the suffering of the mediator does not date from the end of his stay on earth. The blood of the Savior's circumcision is as much atoning blood for us as is the blood shed on Golgotha. His entire life was a continual suffering. And soon after his circumcision, his life is threatened by King Herod, and he flees to Egypt with his parents, and then from Egypt to Nazareth. Such journeys were not without their dangers. And the suffering that begins in his early years continues into his later years. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that his life was one long experience of suffering. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and applications, loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through which he suffered. This suffering is seen in the 40 days of temptations and testing in the wilderness, but it is also something he experiences right up to the point of his crucifixion. And then the crucifixion itself is the most extreme point of his life-long suffering. Crucifixion was the Roman 
empire's apparatus of terror. Cicero called it the most cruel and horrifying punishment. Origen, the early church father, referred to it as the utterly vile death of the cross. Roman citizens were not allowed to use the word crucifixion on their lips because it was so disgusting and revolting. There was the physical pain of hanging, impaled on a wooden cross, hands and legs tied or kneeled, as in Christ's case, to the wood in an extended posture. Victims could take days to die, depending on the scourging they received beforehand. In Christ's case, He enters the day of His crucifixion without any sleep. Have you ever thought of that? He went to His crucifixion not having had a night's sleep. He was captured in the night and sent across the city back and forth between the high priest, Pilate, Herod. So He enters Friday morning with no sleep. Then He is mocked and beaten by the Roman guards who strike Him on the head with their staff. They pluck out His beard with their hands. They force a crown of thorns on His head. Then He is made to carry this heavy wooden cross on His openly scourged back. And because He is so weak, He needs help from a man called Simon of Cyrene, who is forced to carry his cross. And once at Golgotha, the place of the skull, he is stripped of his linen garment, that priestly garment that we heard of last night, and impaled naked on the cross, his hands and feet pierced with nails, nails through bones, nails through nerves, nails through muscle. There is the physical pain, but also the public shame. He is naked. In Jewish law and culture, clothing was important for modesty and godliness, but now Jesus hangs naked for all to see. Thomas Aquinas captures well the collective nature of Christ's suffering in relation to his five senses, which I think helps to underline the intensity of his suffering. In his head, he suffered from the crown of piercing thorns. In his hands and feet from the driven nails. On his face from the blows and the spittle. And over his entire body from the lashes of the whip. Moreover, he suffered in all his bodily senses, in touch by being scourged and nailed in taste, by being given vinegar and gall to drink in smell, by being nailed to the cross in a place reeking with the stench of corpses, which is called Calvary, in hearing, by being tormented with the cries of blasphemers and scorners, in sight, by beholding the tears of His mother and the disciple whom He loved. The intensity of Christ's suffering, however, is made even more intense in the fact that He experiences all of this alone, alone. 
Klaus Schilder in his moving three-volume work on the trial, passion, and crucifixion of Christ proposes that the general order of Jesus' sayings on the cross indicate a progressive self-isolation. In his first word, Father, forgive them, he addresses the world of the Jews and the Gentiles. In his second word from the cross, he addresses the church, the murderer who has come to faith. In his third word, he addresses his family, his mother, and the beloved disciple who must now care for her. So first, man in general, then man in the church, then woman and man in the family. In the fourth word, he addresses Christ, uh, he addresses God in the dark. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From this point on, it is just him and God in the spiritual realm, and God is silent. It is then inside this circle of two in the dark that the final three utterances are made. Schilder sees the progressive self-isolation beginning with the first words from the cross, Father, forgive them. It creates the division, him and them, Christ and the world. Even Christ's position between the two malefactors heightens his aloneness. It is Christ versus the criminals. He is spatially between them, but he is spiritually separated from them. He is alone. He is all alone. The solitude of the suffering is part of the suffering. Whether it was due to cowardice of his disciples or family or cruelty of the Jews and the Romans, it matters not. He suffers alone. Isaiah 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Yet in the midst of such intense suffering, feeling all alone, what does Christ do? He prays for his enemies, for those who are causing his suffering, for those who have created the context of his isolation. And when we consider who it is that Christ is, then the crime against him becomes incalculable. This brings us to our next point. We've seen an inspired prayer uttered in a moment of intense suffering and nigh an incalculable crime. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Jesus' words at first sight might suggest otherwise. It seems as if he's acknowledging their ignorance in their actions. After all, the soldiers are simply following instructions, are they not? And so their guilt would appear to be non-existent or perhaps minimal at best. 
Catholic moral theology has historically made a distinction between two kinds of ignorance. There's invincible ignorance and vincible ignorance. Invincible ignorance is ignorance that a person has that they are incapable of removing or overcoming by their own effort in a reasonable set of circumstances. Vincible ignorance is ignorance that a person has that can and should be overcome by their own effort under reasonable circumstances. In other words, invincible ignorance incurs less guilt. Vincible ignorance incurs more guilt. The more you know, then the more you can and should stop your action. If you don't, then the more you are guilty. So which kind of ignorance does Jesus have in mind here? Perhaps we might think it's invincible ignorance, for they know not what they do. If that is the case, then the soldiers either have no guilt or very little guilt. But that would be to contradict Jesus' plea, Father, forgive them. The verb forgive, aphiemi in the Greek, it's the main verb used for the remission of sins in the New Testament. And we know that in God's world, sin, whatever kind of sin it is, even ignorant sin, is no light matter. What's more, it's not like these soldiers were in fact just decent men doing their day's work, following orders. Just think of how these soldiers and their compatriots treated Jesus during the trial. They mocked Him, they blindfolded Him, struck Him in the face with punches, saying, come on, tell us, who hit you? Prophesy, who hit you? They strike Him in the head with a staff, they pull out His beard, they put a crown of thorns on His head, they put a purple robe and bow down before Him in mockery. Is all of that just punishment? for a man found innocent under Roman law? No, they were guilty of misusing and abusing their position, guilty of cruelty, great cruelty. We should not forget that these were men who had the law of God written on their hearts. And so they should have known better. And it isn't just them, it's also the Jews. The them and the they of these words do not just include the Roman soldiers. It's everyone who played their part in crucifying Jesus. Pilate, Herod, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Jewish people who cry out, crucify Him, crucify Him. This is confirmed in Acts chapter 3, verse 15 to 17, and 13, 27, and 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. These three texts include the Jews and their leaders and also the rulers of this age as those who crucified Christ. Now, if Jesus' prayer includes the Jews, then they are even more guilty than the Romans since they had the Scriptures. They should have recognized their king, and yet they repeatedly deny his identity. So there is 
real sin involved here from Jew and Gentile. There is real guilt and it is serious sin. It is serious guilt. Everyone involved has the law of God written on their hearts. The Jews have the Word of God memorized in their heads. Everyone is guilty at some level. So what then does Jesus mean when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Well, the texts that I just mentioned a moment ago provide the answer. Let me read them to you. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Peter, speaking to the Jews, says, you killed the author of life. 1 Corinthians verses two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, none of the princes of this world knew this, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, when Jesus says, for they know not what they do, He is not absolving them of any guilt, nor is He minimizing their guilt. Rather, He is saying that they need to be forgiven for an incalculable crime that they don't even know that they're committing. They killed the author of life that Friday afternoon. They crucified the Lord of glory that day. They may be ignorant of that fact, but that doesn't stop them committing the incalculable crime of crucifying the Lord of glory. And so they need to be forgiven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And herein we see the grace of Christ, or better, the Christ of grace shine more brightly as the recipient of intense suffering, as the victim of an incalculable crime. Jesus was jolted. And what came out of His mouth from His heart? Grace. Father, forgive them. On that dark and dreadful Friday afternoon in the middle of indescribable physical pain and unimaginable public shame, what spilled out of His mouth from His heart as He was jolted was the sweet water of forgiveness. Father, wipe away all of their sins. But on what basis could Jesus pray such a prayer? On what basis could He make such a plea? After all, He knows full well that God cannot forgive sin without a ransom without a sacrifice. He knows that His Father does not remit without recompense, that He is not satisfied without sacrifice, that he, is, that he does not justify without justice, that He cannot pardon without a payment. Jesus knows all of this. So why does He pray, Father, forgive them? Well, Jesus offers such a prayer of forgiveness, knowing two things. 
which brings us to our fourth and fifth point. Jesus' prayer of forgiveness is possible because of an indestructible relationship, an indestructible relationship. Jesus knows that He can pray this prayer because He has an indestructible relationship with His Father. It's interesting that Jesus' first and last words of the cross each begin with an address to God, Father. Father, forgive them. Father, into Thy hands I commit my spirit. In recent years, some presentations of the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me, have sought to introduce some kind of rupture into the Trinity as Christ cries out, my God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? But such presentations can end up being, I think, unfortunate at times and at other times heterodox. Now, granted, this cry of dereliction is a mystery at the most profound level of theology, but there are some things I think we can affirm, and there are also some things I think we should avoid. The first is that were the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be ruptured in any way at any moment, then all reality would be blown to smithereens. In Christ, the eternal Son, all things hold together. If the eternal Son and the eternal Father cannot be held together in relationship, then it does not bode well for all other things in the universe. Second, we must not think that when the eternal Son became a man, that He somehow emptied heaven of His presence. If the eternal Son is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit in substance, power, and glory, then that substance, power, and glory must remain co-equal in the Son, even in His incarnation. This means that when the eternal Son became incarnate and was a baby in His mother's womb or a baby in the manger, He was still filling heaven with His presence. This truth was affirmed by the early church fathers, but also by Calvin, became known as the extra Calvinisticum because of Calvin's articulation of the truth in relation to Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. But it was present in the early church fathers. Listen to Athanasius. The Word was not so circumscribed in the body as as to be there only and nowhere else. He was still the energizing principle of all things as before. He was in everything, but not essentially identified with everything, but only entirely in the Father alone. The soul, by acts of thought, can comprehend distant objects, but cannot influence them. Not so the eternal Word, for He controlled both His own body and the whole universe, being in all things and yet essentially distinct from them. As man, He fulfilled human duties. As the eternal Word, He quickened all things. As the Son, He was with the Father. Here's Calvin. 
Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, He willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross, yet He continuously filled the world even as He had done from the beginning. Now, this is a great mystery, but this is what we need to affirm, that in the incarnation, the divine Son was fully united to Christ's human nature, but the, 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 the divine Son was not fully contained in that human nature. The Son, like the Father, remained omnipresent. This means that the Son was in the bosom of the Father before the Incarnation and also after the Incarnation and therefore also at the cross. There was no part of the Son missing in heaven when Christ was on earth. There was no rupture between the Father and the Son when Christ was on earth or on the cross. And therefore, there was no rupture in the Trinity. So what then are we to make of the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We heard that lovely quote by Luther last night, God forsaken of God. But Luther was using theological shorthand, and I think it's important to unpack it, what we mean and what we don't mean. I think it is an expression of what Christ experienced in His human nature. He felt abandoned by God the Father for a time on the cross as the incarnate mediator, but at no time did the eternal Son in His divine nature experience any anger from His Father. Or to put it as a friend does, God was angry toward Christ in His profession, not so much in His person. If the Father was angry with the person of the divine Son in His divine nature, then it makes the mockery of Christ praying to the Father to forgive others on account of His death. How can God hear the Son's prayer if He's angry with Him? The only way the Father can forgive others on account of Christ's death is if He is pleased with Christ in His death. Calvin puts it like this, how could Christ by His intercession appease the Father toward others? If the Father were somehow hateful, or sorry, if Christ were somehow hateful to God. Yet Calvin goes on to say that Christ bore the weight of divine severity since He was stricken and afflicted by God's hand and experienced all the signs of a wrathful and avenging God. And I know that sounds like double talk coming out of Calvin's mouth. At one moment, the father's not angry with the son. At the next moment, he's afflicting him in his wrath. But there is mystery here, and I think what Calvin is trying to get at is what others have called a dual attitude towards Christ on the cross from the father. Thomas Goodwin puts it like this, God should never be more angry with his son than when he was most pleased with him. Arthur Pink explains it like this, 
Never was God more pleased with His beloved Son than when He hung on the cross in obedience to Him. Yet He withdrew from Him every effect or manifestation of His love during those three hours of awful darkness. Yea, He poured out His wrath upon Him as our sin-bearer. I think this dual attitude perspective, it avoids ditches on both sides of the road, and in particular, preserves the indestructible relationship between the Father and the Son within the Godhead during the crucifixion of Christ, which makes the forgiveness possible. We might put it like this, in those three hours of darkness, the Father conceals His loving face from His Son, all the while still loving Him. Franz Dillich, the biblical commentator, has a nice illustration. Hidden behind the wrath as final agent is love, just as the sun is hidden behind the thunderclouds. As Christ dies on the cross, He is loved by God. But Christ, in His human nature, cannot see that for this time because as the second and last Adam, He is substituting for sinners, and so He is under the wrath of God. He is abandoned by God because He stands in Adam's place substitutionally, and He is loved by God because He stands in Adam's place obediently. We're back to Thomas Goodwin's quote, God should never be more angry with His Son than when He is most pleased with Him. And beyond that, the explanations should cease and the worship should begin. For this is the great mystery, God forsaken of God. Now, all of this is to say that the basis on which Christ can ask His Father for, for forgiveness for sinners is because there is an indestructible relationship. Put another way, in order for there to be forgiveness for sinners, there must be unity and harmony within the Godhead. Excuse the pun, but there cannot be cross-purposes within the Godhead while Christ is dying on the cross. In other words, when Christ asks His Father to forgive sinners, He can only do so because He is the beloved Son of His Father, with whom His Father is well pleased. Here we see that the grace of Christ to sinners is an overflow of the love between Father and Son. The Christ of grace is who He is to sinners because He is the beloved Son of His Father doing His Father's will, dying to bring forgiveness to sinners. But this is not the only basis on which Christ makes this prayer or makes this plea to His Father. Yes, there is an indestructible relationship, but fifth, it is made possible by an incredible substitution, an incredible substitution. The reason Christ can pray for this forgiveness 
is because as he is praying for it, he's paying for it. The reason Christ can pay, pray for the forgiveness is because he is paying for the forgiveness. The substitutionary nature of Christ's death is seen in the exchange that takes place between him and Barabbas earlier in the chapter. In accordance with Jewish tradition at the Passover festival, Pilate offers to release a prisoner. Pilate's preference is to release Christ because he says he has found nothing wrong with him. The Jews' preference is to release Barabbas, a man who is in prison for insurrection and murder. Interestingly, Barabbas, the name in Aramaic, in Aramaic sorry, means son of the father, Bar Abbas. Bar is Aramaic for son, Abba, father. But it is there that the similarities between Jesus and Barabbas stop. One son of the father will substitute for the other son of the father. Barabbas is the son of his father, the devil, who himself was a murderer from the beginning. Isn't it interesting that Barabbas is described as a murderer? Why? Because he is the son of his father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And Jesus is the son of his father in heaven who is no murderer. They are diametrically opposed. Their names might be similar. But Jesus is innocent. And he's innocent under Roman law and therefore deserving of release. Barabbas is guilty under Roman law and therefore deserving of death. Yet due to the coercion of the crowd, Pilate buckles and releases Barabbas and sentences Jesus to crucifixion. The innocent will die in the place of the guilty. The son of his father in heaven will die in the place of the son of his father, the devil. It is an incredible, unbelievable, extraordinary substitution. And as such, it serves as the basis for Jesus' prayer of forgiveness for others. He can pray for forgiveness because he is paying for forgiveness in his incredible substitution. In the moment of asking the Father, he is appeasing the Father. And herein we see his grace shine all the brighter for the suffering and isolation and sacrifice that he is offering on their behalf to make them recipients of God's forgiveness is all because of them. The Apostle Paul captures this incredible substitution like this, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Hugh Martin, Scottish uh, minister was, has, has a wonderful essay called The Exchange of Places, in which he looks at five ways in which Christ was rich. He says, Christ was rich in righteousness, life, blessing, strength, and glory. And then Hugh Martin links those five riches of Christ to five corresponding poverties that reflect our state 
Christ was rich in righteousness, we are poor in sin. Christ was rich in life, we are poor in death. Christ was rich in blessing, we are poor in curse. Christ was rich in strength, we are poor in weakness. Christ was rich in glory, we are poor in guilt and shame. But then, the great exchange. He assumes our place and poverty and transfers us into his place and riches, says Martin. In other words, Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died so that we might live. Christ was cursed so that we might be blessed. Christ became weak so that we might become strong. Christ was shamed on the cross so that we might shine in glory. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the amazing, magnificent grace of Christ, or better, here is the amazing, magnificent Christ of grace. For in the very moment of making this incredible substitution for those for whom he is making it are hating him, mocking him, crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A cup brimful of sweet water, when jolted, only spills sweet water. There are two more aspects of Jesus' prayer that I think are worth looking at briefly. We've seen an inspired prayer uttered in an intense moment of suffering. We've seen that it concerns an incalculable debt, an incalculable crime. It is offered on the basis of an indestructible relationship and an incredible substitution. Number six, it's an indistinct prayer. The they and the them are indistinct. Of course, in the context, we know it's the Romans and the Jews with their respective leaders. But isn't it interesting that Jesus leaves the recipients of forgiveness indistinct in the actual prayer. He could have been more distinct. He could have been more particular, more specific. Father, forgive these soldiers, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive the civil leaders, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive my people, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive the mockers, for they know not what they do. No, he just leaves it indistinct. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And because it's indistinct, it's therefore all-inclusive. Because who is not included in this prayer? Rulers and ruled, Pilate and passers-by, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, boys and girls. Who is not included? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Spurgeon comments movingly, No, there is no word of accusation upon those dear lips. Father, forgive them, 
now into that pronoun them. I feel I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. It seems like a chariot of mercy has come down to earth into which a man may step, and it shall bear him to heaven. Father, forgive them. What a beautiful application of this verse. It highlights the grace of Christ, that His grace extends to all kinds of sinners. So, let me ask you, have you crawled into that big little word, them? Father, forgive them. Then a final remark, an invincible prayer, an invincible prayer. And by invincible, I mean it cannot be resisted or overcome. Now, of course, I don't mean that when Jesus prayed this prayer, the whole world was forgiven, ipso facto, by its very fact of utterance. Everybody was immediately forgiven. No, just as the gospel is preached to all indiscriminately, but saves only the elect effectively. So, this prayer of Christ is prayed indiscriminately, but it will save only the elect effectively. We see the efficacy of Christ's prayer in the very moment of His death. The thief on the cross is forgiven. The centurion at the foot of the cross is forgiven. Both of them have the scales removed from their eyes, and they see Jesus for the first time for who He is, the innocent Son of God, dying in the place of guilty sinners like them and Barabbas. In other words, the Father hears this prayer and answers it immediately, but He also answers it laterally. Acts chapter 2 and chapter 3, several weeks after Jesus' death, Some of the Jews who crucified Him are confronted by Peter about crucifying the author of life, and they repent and believe and receive forgiveness. Jesus' prayer for them becomes effective. Calvin captures the invincibility of the prayer beautifully when he says, there is no doubt that the prayer was heard by the heavenly Father whence it resulted that many of the people who had spilled His blood came afterwards to drink it." What a beautiful way of explaining or expressing the invincibility of this prayer. Many of those who spilled His blood came afterwards to drink it, to receive the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. Take and eat given for you. Take and drink given for you. Father, forgive them. And He did. And He did. In closing, let me return to that 
illustration by Amy Carmichael. A cup brimful of sweet water when jolted only spills sweet water. On that dreadful, dark Friday afternoon, as Jesus was lifted up on the cross, He was jolted with an indescribable physical pain, an unimaginable public shame, but the only thing that spilled out of His mouth from His heart was the sweet water of forgiveness. On the cross, we see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ even better. We see Christ, the Christ of grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, let me ask you as I close, have you received this forgiveness? Have you crawled into that big little word, them? Father, forgive them. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing. Tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to Thee. Let us pray. Father, we pray that You would forgive us for not understanding just how much Your Son, the Lord Jesus, loves us. We pray that today, through this lecture, through this meditation on Your Word, that You would please remove the scales from our eyes and give us that amazing panoramic vista of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ for us. And having seen it, Father, may we love the Christ of love, the Christ of grace, all the more. So, may we see Him more clearly. May we love Him more dearly, and so follow Him more nearly. And we ask this in His precious name. Amen.